I'm not saying we should abolish money. Um, and I'm not a political figure per se, right? But what I do challenge is the, is the thought about how, um, you know, some fundamental paradigms of money are just being repeated over and over again. Welcome to another episode of Speak Like a CEO, the leading podcast on CEO communications. My name is Oliver Aus, best-selling author and CEO of EOIPSO. And my guest today is someone who wanted, I wanted to have on the podcast for a long time, Katharina Gera. She's the CEO and co-founder of Immutable Insight, and she manages one of the first crypto hedge funds in Germany, among many other things. Hi, Katharina. Thank you for being here. Hey, Oliver, and thank you very much for having me. How did you get into crypto? I mean, you come from the traditional world of finance, if I may say so, and now you're managing a crypto hedge fund. So let's start there. What's your origin story? What what path did you take to get where you are? Let's start quite early. Even in the board game era, I was wondering why that money wasn't worth anything outside of the board game. And while the um, bills and coins um, in my pocket would supposedly be something, um, so I've always had a curiosity about money and particularly also paper money and coins and, and why that, you know, is, is worth something, why we all use it every day. And then later on, that led me to study um, economics and even brought me further to the crossing of uh, political science and economy, you know, become intrigued not only why is this particular money worth something, but how does it compete with other monies? And how is also money a representative not only of economic value, but also political um, ideology. And so that kind of always has been something that intrigued me, also led me then to finance um, as a, let's say, working um, field. And eventually with the emergence of the blockchain technology, obviously a whole new narrative, a whole new um, alternative came about. So that's really been what led me eventually into the blockchain technology and uh, crypto assets. And now even Handelsblatt named you as one of the top 50 businesswomen in the country among, among many other accolades you've uh, you've had. So you clearly come a long way since the days of playing Monopoly. How important is that to you and to the business? The fact that you're quite uh, you're in the public eye as a podcaster, as someone who appears in, in business dailies and so on. Well, um, I don't think it's a means to an end. It's it's more something that developed on its own, but also something because I am sincerely passionate about um, blockchain as a technology. I do think it's superior to the means of communication and the internet that we use today. And I'm also from an era where I felt um, growing up, we've always been uh, the last ones to see the movie. Um, we've been the last ones to adopt the internet. So I kind of feel like we should have known better by now to recognize early that emerging technologies um, ask you to be bold, um, ask you to act even in times of uncertainty, um, require also a certain level of risk taking. But you know that that risk pays off massively. And, and, you, and by we you mean Europeans or Germany? Yeah, or? Europeans and 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 Germany. Yeah. Um, so let's say more. I didn't want to be a follower. Um, being a follower doesn't really appeal to uh, my personality. Yeah. And um, so I just, you know, thought this is a great opportunity. And because I'm so convinced that this is the next step, I've just, I just felt like, you know, um, in previous times I could claim whoever the elite or the leaders back then were. But um, I think I'm at an ancient point in time where. You know, I really can't point to anybody else. So um, I felt um, I wanted to do my part that I could 
and you know also spread the word and so that just emerged and I, I don't really you know care for the accolades itself I think it's just a recognition of me being on that journey to to talk about the the feels the topics that I feel strongly about yeah and I like the way you you talk about the issues and, and you have many times so um, I wanted to ask you you even mentioned that we are in a new era of enlightenment what why do you believe that um Enlightenment, when we just, you know, take ourselves back to the 1800s where people, you know, were living and being raised in a very strong ideological situation, right? It was, there was a church and um, the kings were, you know, directly appointed by, by God and still a group, a few thinkers, um, you know, said, no, I, I actually think that's wrong and I do think that, you know, we should use our uh, brain and our logic instead and, you know, that we're more created equal and, and why would that person be appointed and how is that person different to um, maybe a servant? So I've always had a sense of pure amazement of the trust uh, that those people, you know, put in their own ideas, the faith and, and the, the conviction and the confidence that that took to, you know, stand up and, and raise the voice and, and voice an opinion against such a strong elite. And um, I think that's something that, um, particularly in the past years, sometimes has gotten a little bit in the backbone, right? Everything seemed to be so normal in the modern world that we didn't start really to think and challenge the status quo in certain ways. It's just become a new norm. And so with money, um, I think similar, like we've overcome the church and other things, we haven't really challenged money as a norm yet. Okay. But knowing what we know today and um, having looked at it, I think, you know, it's a little bit coming down to exactly that, a new era of enlightenment when we think about money. And just because it's always been that way doesn't necessarily mean it should be that way or it will be that way. And so I think it's extremely important that we, you know, also understand this as a huge opportunity for us as a generation um, and as free people to to think about where the next step should be. So I think we're probably familiar with this, the story of money, not just the history of money, but the fact that there is a story behind money, which, you know, which, which we've all been told, we've internalized. But you want to tell a new story about a new form of money. What, what is the new story of money? Well... The new story of money is um, more one of monetary system. So I don't challenge the fact that it's a means of exchange and that it's also, you know, pr produced a common set of incentives. So I'm not saying we should abolish money. Um, and I'm not a political figure per se, right? But what I do challenge is the, is the thought about how, um, you know, some fundamental paradigms of money are just being repeated over and over again. So, um, The money um, that we have today requires a, a central bank, a, a central political um, sphere. But then again, um, Bretton Woods was 1972. The real GDP has diverged substantially from where we've been there. But money is an abstract of real GDP. We've now seen with uh, the Russian war and the Russian aggression and, and the reaction of the Chinese that de facto uh, money is also a political um a political weapon. And we've kind of um, discarded that uh, truth uh, that has been around um, in, in previous um, decades much more than it has been now. And um, so we need to understand that money isn't just a means of exchange. 
it has a political side and by that it's being used politically as well. Um, and at the same time, a little bit like information monopolies has, have been broken by the old internet. Now the monetary monopoly has been broken um, by the blockchain as a technology. So now you can create alternative forms of money or a means of exchange and they're secure, they're faster, um, they're um, cheaper. Um, and so I do think, you know, we should embrace the technology and we should understand uh, that, in fact, we can um, uh, think about uh, improvements of the systems. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you made it your mission to convince as many people as possible of the future of money. And, and how do you do that? What's the right approach? Because a lot of people are worried or afraid or they just don't understand it. So how do you go about it? Well, first of all, I'm not a missionary um, in the sense that I think I have a truth and I want everybody to convince um, about my truth. So my approach is um, radically different from that, right? I said, look, I have certain observations and certain criticisms. And when I apply my logic, then, you know, certain questions arise that I don't find answers for. But if I were to need to formulate a hypothesis on those answers, then these, what I would be come up with. And, and I try to, to engage in um, more explicitly ask for a discussion about them. So over the past four years that I've done that mainly, I've been, you know, having getting a lot of uh, criticisms, but also, you know, very constructive feedback and um, and enhancing points. So I really just, you know, I'm on a learning journey. Um, I sometimes feel more like Socrates um, than an apostle, right? I want to learn. I, I ask uh, people that also supposedly are experts uh, in the field of money and, and try to see how they react and try to see what arguments they come up with. But most importantly, I don't do that because I, again, I have a political agenda or I like or dislike money. That's not my point. I think I would believe that eventually the blockchain will enable a token economy. And a token economy will mean very different things for money as we know it today. And I also believe that the token economy will generate the next generation of wealth and productivity in an aging society, in a multipolar society. So I do that in order to benefit um, the broader, let's say, um, industry and, and productivity. And also because we have challenges like sustainability. And I do also believe that only technology can overcome those obstacles. It's not stopping things or forbidding things that will um, help us. It will, um, you know, technological improvements and making things more efficient is my belief will will do that. And also the third thing is identity and privacy. I do I am concerned about privacy. I am concerned about the um identity and our human rights. So all of those over and over again when I discuss, I feel like token economist the answer. And on that journey I engage in discussions about that. So how do you explain the token economy to your grandmother? The token economy is a new way to combine the risk and return and liquidity of all our actions in a way that benefits all sides. Um, it doesn't matter how technological that works. In the end, today we live in a world where certain price inefficiencies happen because we have a bulk risk, because we have an exclusion, or because we misprice um, risk. And the token economy does for each participant in that system the decrease of such inefficiencies. And um, uh, th that's the abstract version. Um, and then the question is, how does that translate in everybody's lives? 
And then my favorite example is the self-charging car. Okay, so right now we spend time going um, to a gas station and filling up gas ourselves and then, you know, going in there and paying um, the bill. But in the end, a self-charging car can do all that without you needing to be present or spending your lifetime on it um, or even engaging in a payment transaction. So the token economy will make the world more convenient and more safe and um, uh, more efficient. And I think that's why it also will be a, the new normal for everybody, at least in, in five to 10 years. Yeah, it's interesting. What, what I like about it is that, um, you know, it is possible to reward people who do something good for society that's currently not rewarded with money. So, you know, the typical Ehrenamt or you know, to, do, to do something um, because you believe in a cause. So that, that that's that's an additional benefit I see. Um, now, the last few weeks have been pretty turbulent in crypto and, you know, other markets as well. And I could imagine that there are a lot of questions you, you're getting at the moment. So we're recording this in May 2022. And, uh, you know, the market's been up and down and it's definitely very volatile. And, and as usual, people are saying, oh, this is the end of crypto. And, you know, it just shows it's not sustainable. So what, what's what's your take on it? Well, um You've talked about origin stories before, so let me go back to my blockchain origin story. I've left my private equity job to um, actually start something in the blockchain space um, directly after the Bit Bitcoin crash in 2018. Um, there are you know, um, parts about the blockchain community even four years later that I don't like, and they mostly have to do with um, um, hybrids. And um, to me... The best products, the best teams, and um, also the greatest opportunities are in times like these. Um, I am very proud because uh, we've always prepared for crash days like those. And although every year you have two or three or four crash days like that um, in the crypto industry. So it's nothing that has been surprising as such. But um, what has been more confirming for the way how we manage uh, our clients' money is that, um, you know, we weren't invested in Luna, we weren't in invested in, in those things that crashed, and we have a risk-return approach. So um, Sustain Liquid, our um, signature product, um, actually increased and benefited. Um, it's now clearly outperformed the market. It's delivered exactly what it was supposed to do. And all our other products also um, have a sig significantly better performance than the market. Now, you do that in the crash times. You don't do that in all-time high times, right? And so my fiduciary duty um, is to the best of my knowledge and, and our team's uh, capacity to manage somebody else's money, particularly when it comes to uh, things like that. So that's a good thing for us. Um, on the other hand, crypto isn't dead. Um, the blockchain technology isn't dead. Um, quite frankly, the blockchain technology doesn't care um, anything about the price of Bitcoin. And um, so I don't think that that is, you know, the end of it, you know, and I always just like to remind um, everybody in July last year, we had uh, even lower times like this. And in October, we had all time highs. Everything in crypto is fast. The down is fast, the up is fast. Um, what really matters is the number of users and the number of transactions. And um, as long as that um, fundamental uh, truth um, is growing and is uh, increasing, um, as long as that is the case, then we don't uh, really have an issue. So, so basically, a crypto hedge fund works like a, a normal hedge fund uh, in the sense that you 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 put mechanisms and 
you know tools in place so that you can beat the market regardless of whether it goes up and down right is that is that fair yeah yeah uh, and, and who can invest in uh, in your hedge fund so um, out of the three products that we currently have live, and three more will come this year, um, two are actually um, also for retail, so CryptoBest, um, which is the up and, and downside participating a product, is available at 1,000 euros. And Sustained Liquid, which is the non-volatile CO2 neutral product, is also available at 1,000 euros. So it's retail um, and everybody can buy it via Börse Stuttgart. The crypto hedge fund is for semi-professional and professional investors. Um, so it starts at 125,000 um, euros. So that's a different um, category. Um, but as I said, the retail version is um, uh, at Comdirect even available at 25 wow. euros for a savings plan. That's great. So, um, we've deliberately designed it to be low-key. Yeah, I mean, that, that really makes it accessible to pretty much everyone. And uh, you, you mentioned CO2 neutral. I guess that's something that's come up uh, that comes up more and more in the crypto world, right? So people just um, have become more aware of Bitcoin. And I like what uh, Peter Groskopf said a few weeks ago on the podcast. He's uh, one of the founders of Un uh, Unstoppable Finance. Um, he said that Bitcoin really is like the steam engine of blockchain. You know, it's the, one of the first applications. Yes, it's polluting, but it's not identical with blockchain. It's just a first application of that. And now we've, we've already moved on and the future will be even more uh, sustainable and, and, you know, better technology, obviously. So how, how do you achieve CO2, no, CO2 neutrality? Mm -hmm. So first of all, by investing in proof of stake um, blockchain. So I can only happily, uh, you know, thank Peter. Um, shout out to Peter at this point. Um, and that's exactly the point we always make as well. So proof of stake blockchains are either um, completely CO2 neutral as a network or really have 99.9% .9 less CO2 than Bitcoin. So significantly, materially, largely. Now, um, so we as an investment manager uh, obviously also um, have uh, a little bit of CO2, although we are remote companies. So by definition, we already try to reduce that even structurally. And then we offset whatever CO2 um, we still emit, but it's already significantly um, lower. And I think it's um, important to recognize that everybody who wants to invest their capital into something that will make an impact and enable others to reduce CO2, then blockchain is an infrastructure, right? An infrastructure play, and there are more CO2, uh, CO2 uh, demanding and um, CO2 um, efficient ones. So this is really where you can actually make an impact with where you invest your money. So this is why Sustained Liquid uh, to me is a, is a product that um, I am um, I'm just very much convinced of. And this is really something... Uh, where I feel like uh, this is one of the products why I wanted to be an entrepreneur, why I wanted to found the company, um, because I knew, you know, products like this were missing and other more established organizations wouldn't have the guts to do it. Um, and so we yeah. did. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I love that. Um, you, you share your insights also in a podcast called Block 52, which uh, you co-host with uh, mm -hmm. a few other people. And uh, it seems to be going really well. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, so um, I, I do it with Philip Sandler and Philip Schulden, and we've actually started it three years ago. Um, so um, that in podcast time seems to be ages. Um, but the whole idea is um, we wanted to interview people who are also active in the space and uh, give them a direct um, platform to you know give their story an unfiltered one a direct one where we can you know learn also from them, but we can promote not 
a scam or not, you know, some uh, weirdo um, project, but you know, like literally people who have, you know, dedicated their professional life to being in this space. Um, and so I think a lot of people value that because it's a, it's a non-commercial, you know, you, you can't pay for it. We always select the interviewees. You can't, you know, get around our, let's say, own personal interest in, in having you on and wanting to learn from you. So um, that seems to be a filter that has uh, been appreciated by um, our listeners quite well. Yeah, I have the same approach. And also we started four years ago and exactly that inviting people are very interesting. You can't buy your way into the podcast or completely buy into your podcasting philosophy. Now, I read that you built quite a big, quite a big audience, 85,000 listeners I saw somewhere. You never know whether these figures are accurate and you don't need to confirm or deny it. But how did you build uh, a significant podcast audience? Um, so I actually don't have the um, strong numbers and because we we're non-commercial like I always don't run like the, the the stats themselves what we have like we just use podcasts so they give us the the accumulated uh, number um, so that obviously goes up by definition but um, look it's been honestly only completely word of mouth and Philip and I we, we post on LinkedIn or on Twitter when we do an episode and then mostly the um, guests um, you know do the same um, but um, what we do see, at least from the feedback that we get, and I think from the overall numbers that you can see, is there seems to be a consistent, um, a consistent number of people who you know tune in Sunday night and uh, listen to the new episode before they I don't know go about and start their um, start their week. Um, and um, uh, I think also the, the good thing is because we uh, don't necessarily need to promote it in any way commercially. The good thing is that I think the, the um, um, how do I say that? The look and feel is kind of like a relaxed weekend mode. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> I don't know if that comes across right, but it, it seems to be an easy, uh, an easy listening, and and it's it's a natural conversation that hasn't been scripted, and um, you know, so it, there seems to be a flow about it that people appreciate. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I quite like the flow, and it's not too techy. So even for you know amateurs like me, is it's relatively easy to follow. So, and I think you touched upon a few things which actually work quite well for anyone who who is considering building an audience is um, via podcast, which is um, you have to just be very consistent, right? You have to do it over a long period of time because people need to find you, they need to tell others about you, and then they need to um, develop the habit of listening to you. So it's not something, it's not a medium anymore where you have quick success simply because they're very, you know, there's just a lot of podcasts. So if you have a good, if you found your niche and you're very consistent in delivering good, high quality content with interesting guests, uh, I think then you're on the right path. But I, I agree, I wouldn't overbrain it. It's just literally, um, you know, enjoying that you can have these conversations and wanting to share them. Because that's that's the value, I think. And like like you, we also don't have a commercial objective here. It's literally just, you know, a labor of love where you talk about communications with very interesting people. And it's a privilege that I'm allowed to do that every week. So so thank you for that. Um, where 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 do you see your communications go? I mean, you you're out there. You're very active. Uh, is there any sort of big communications milestone you have in front of you where you think, okay, we really want to get to that point? Um. For good or for worse, I think um, we haven't approached communications in a systematic and structural way, which is very unlike me. Um, so a lot of, a lot of pe people out there um, are probably a bit surprised at that. But I've been, 
um, it, it's been catching up so quickly um, and kind of one thing led to the other that um, we didn't really um, have a time uh, to pause and, and think about it um, that systematically or in a planned way. So I can't really actually tell you what the next milestone is. What I can tell you is that we try to build a audience also particularly out of the main crypto scene. So I don't take a lot of um, satisfaction to kind of preaching to the converted. Uh, I also, in fact, don't really take a lot of pride in preaching itself, but it's the idea that we are in different industries, we're in different um, audiences where we are probably the odd newbie. And, and then most of the time people um, also haven't heard my name. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of like to, to take them um, onto the journey, what that actually means for them. Because I do think it will touch all industries. It will touch most of the jobs that we see today. It will certainly touch all of the jobs that are somehow related or connected or using the internet today. So this is, I think, um, my, my general theme and my working hypothesis to spread the world widely. And um, then in, in terms of um, penetration of existing markets, then um, getting the established asset managers and the established banks to recognizing that um, different to what most of them seem to think today, that it, at some point it will be a choice whether or not they engage and embrace the blockchain as a technology. That in fact, that is, I think, a, a misconception um, they will use the blockchain technology one way or the other, directly or indirectly, deliberately or, um, uh, or not so. And I think to them to understand that there is a too late, but already there isn't a too early, is a core message that I've been trying to get out there and that, I'm, that I'll continue to spread. Why is that too late? Because when you think about Web 2, and a lot of people are so slow to pick up on Web 2, and I wouldn't necessarily say there was a too late for Web 2. I mean, potentially for Europe, really? if you think about it. I would think <laughs> So, okay, yeah, talk, talk to that. That's interesting. Let's talk about that. Well, the economist in me, right, um, says everybody will have the cost, but only few will have the opportunity to actually gain from a competitive advantage, right? Right. So everybody will need to do it at some point. But for most of them, it will be a must. And uh, already a point in time that we'll be entering the market where margins have been eroded and it's become a commodity. So um, everybody has more or less the same cost, but, but less return on that same cost applied. Granted, but you're talking about businesses and uh, political economies, right? Let's talk about the individual, because I think that's where the rubber hits the road. I think people generally understand that macroeconomically, you need to be competitive and adopt new technologies. But then at the individual level, people are quite hesitant. Well, um, on an individual level, the same applies to a certain extent. And I think there are two things. Do you consider the individual only being a user of a service? Or do you consider most of the individuals probably also as um, having a certain, you know, human capital and an employability and a return on on their actual skills, right? So right. I think on on the latter, um, actually, it's very compared uh, comparative because it is a competition, 
right? Um, and on the on, on the former, you know, you could argue, let's take staking rewards as something very simple, right? Will in five to ten years be the level of staking rewards the same? The the greater the mass adoption, I don't know. Most likely not, right? Um, of course, you need to be able to bear a certain level of risk. So um, I fully recognize the individual risk levels. I fully recognize, you know, the very different, let's say, social starting points that people are on. So, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't um, say it is for everybody. And I think that would be um, just a, a, a very um, uh, false assumption on my behalf. But generally, um, I do think, you know, it's uh, blockchain has been around with Bitcoin since 2009 even if it was a steam engine, um, but it's uh, it's now 13 years, right? 13 right. years around. It's so <laughs> ages and in internet times. Yeah. <laughs> it, it has been uh, said to be dead many, many times and, and it's still um, thriving and it's a lot of capitalists uh, flowing in there, a lot of, um, you know, great uh, talent is going into the space and... Um, I, I don't necessarily, you know, think we've seen the end of it. Certainly not. But the theme and the leitmotiv, I think, is clear. And um, you know, you can, you can, you can build something. You can grow something. And I honestly don't think there are too many great growth opportunities for my generation and the next generation in terms for the next twenty to thirty years. So that's why I think there is a, uh, you know, there is a. Uh, uh, an element of at least not being um, too early. Let's yeah. let's concur with that. I, I totally agree. So I, I wanted to provoke this a little bit because I think that there's there's an important truth here, an important insight, and I'd be interested to see if you agree. Now, psychologically, it's very hard to convince people to do something by giving them negative messages, uh, giving messages about, oh, we're going to lose out, we're not going to be competitive, be it as an economy, a business, or uh, as a person, right? So what makes... Uh, more sense in terms of communications if we want to convince people to move forward if that is, is to give them positive messages about a better future, a bright future, uh, where they can sell, themselves imagine them, you know, themselves as be that as private uh, citizens and investors, be this as employees, be this as business leaders. H how can we make this happen? How can we make it more positive in terms of the messaging? Uh, well, Oliver, it's actually interesting that you put it that way. I've never thought about it that way, but I can tell you what indirectly I'm probably doing. Um, to me, I've never been so convinced and I've never been so passionate. I've never been so driven about anything in my work life than I have been in those past four years, right? So what I just share is the urge in me, the fire in me, the, 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 the excitement in me about all the opportunities that I see, about all the things that I think will improve and, and, the, and the great change it can embrace. And, you know, given all the challenges that we have, that it actually is a great lever to solve so many of those things that we have. So I, I did, in fact, you know, talk more about opportunity and, and things that can be gained from it than the negative side. And I've been trying to avoid the, the you know, the constant myths that have been repeated on, on money laundering, on energy consumption, yada, yada, yada. So I just disregard for most when I can that part of the discussion and talk about it, why, you know, why I feel so strongly about it. And, you know, no matter what the argument, I came out more convinced than less convinced. So that's that's been my angle. And so I think, yeah, as I said, indirectly, without uh, looking at it at the same way you've just analyzed it, that's I think that's been the essence of my story.
Yeah, and you totally have. Uh, it's absolutely fair. Um, but I thought it's very interesting to to think about the messaging around Web three and crypto in this way. Um, and and um, I think the other thing to avoid is people getting burned, right? So once they get burned, they they don't return quickly. Um, and it comes back to you know know what you're doing. Don't just follow the herd. Do your own research and uh, you know uh, partner up with with um, you know companies like yourself if you want to invest. Yeah, well, Oliver, let me actually make one point. Um, I think one of the books that have um, helped me shape my um, thinking was the book Factfulness, right? Yeah, that's Rosling. And it, yes, and it, it talks about the gap instinct and the negativity instinct. Um, and I also always like the concept of the gray rhinos versus the black swans. <laughs> so I, I do think I'm aware of what the new cycle is, um, you know, trying to hammer in all our brains and what kind of messaging is out there and how that is. See, even if somebody has been burned by losing 50% of the Bitcoin price, you know, in, in 2020 or in 2021, he will still be better off today than he was then. So there is this element of, you know, being burned doesn't mean being dead and you know but what what certainly is the case if somebody just held cash or invested in bonds he will be definitely worse off with no future upside because inflation yes, and negative that's returns guaranteed. <laughs> you know would have destroyed your value so you know it's just because it isn't in the news doesn't mean it's actually more harmful and just because in the news somebody says ooh you know this is bad or crypto is dead that doesn't necessarily reflect anything but a newspaper headline that is being sold that particular day in time. So uh, I do think that, you know, and again, if we talk, let's just close the circle a bit because I've talked about the era of enlightenment and you brought this up at the beginning of this interview, you know, dare to think, distance yourself from whatever is being you know, presently messaged at you, you know, think about the agenda behind the message, look at the data, um, you know, make up your own mind about the data, be aware of your own biases, you know, and, and, and take a step back and, and actually think about the underlying driving forces and then make your decision. So yes, that, you know, that is something that is, um, I think required in order to to not be misled by perceived or over-exaggerated risks versus the actual upside. Yeah, well put. I mean, look beyond the the clickbait. Before I let you go, and I know you, you're very busy, but I wanted to ask you one more question about uh, political stakeholders. So you've been invited to speak uh, in hearings, uh, the German parliament, for instance. So there's clearly a lot of interest uh, among political decision makers, and they've come to you among other, other influential people in the space. So... Um, could you speak to that? So what do you do? I guess, I guess you're telling them the same thing you're telling us because that's that's your story. That's what you believe. But how do they react and what do you think will happen now? Um, well, uh, I can only share my, my different observations. Um, I do think that also on the political agenda, we have an opportunity to talk more about the potential of the token economy in the next few years than uh, the current state of the energy consumptions of the blockchain. And I do think that reflects the level of knowledge that is increasing uh, and also um, new uh, members of parliament and new governments that are slightly more open 
let's say, to the new technology. Um, but then again, there are, you know, strong different opponents. Um, you have, you know, different industries or functions um, that have been benefiting from the current system and that, you know, as intermediaries in the blockchain wouldn't be needed as much. Um, and there's, you know, strong certain lobbies that are very outspoken against um, everything um, around blockchain. So it's a political battle. Um, I think it's one where the um, critics um, had a too easy way to, um, you know, to be heard and there wasn't enough um, talk about the opportunities. So I will try to partially, you know, fill that gap um, with whatever means I have, and and also educate the political leaders and and give them also the data and the tools and the reports at hand to understand, um, you know, what they're really deciding upon, and, and you know, having a focus of the next five to ten years of the decade of prosperity they could create with that. Um, and so this is, you know, um, uh, my uh, my push for recognizing the potential of the token economy. Yeah, interesting because it should fit into the with the European and the German political agenda in terms of uh, modernization, not missing that next wave of um, of of, of digital digitalization and technology that will give birth to the next wave of great companies, right? So it should fit right in. Well, it's uh, I think the what should and political agendas are are sometimes a bit. Um, uh, messy to differentiate. Um, I agree there, there, there is a good overlap of um, supposed political intent, but then again, you know, their their political political negotiations are always a battle of of stakeholders and of different uh, groups underneath. So, you know, where I would see an opportunity, somebody else may may not see that and then argue against it. Um, so, um, you know, I'm very well aware of the of the different um, framing approaches. And to be quite frankly, I mean, I think one of the great case study examples of political framing is the whole idea that Bitcoin is bad because of the energy consumption. And I think the, the current banking organizations and lobbies have done a marvelous job at, you know, painting a devilish picture about the bad cryptocurrencies Um and, and not talking about inflation and then the fact that that means, I mean, 80% of all big asset management, pension uh, funds and structures don't make money for the end client, but certainly they do for the asset manager. So, you know, and, and the inflation rate and negative interest rate have decreased the, the amount of um, assets, uh, real assets that the clients have. Those are the stories that are not being told. It's the story about how Bitcoin can drop 50% in a day and still be the best performing asset of the past 10 years. And that is not the, so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a game. Yeah, it's very interesting what you say, and I, I love your reference to framing because this is how political debates are won or lost, right? Who wins the battle over the framing, the, the cognitive frame of mind? We put people in who are listening to this, be this politicians or the wider public. And of course, you know, the wider public needs to be convinced because politicians have a KPI of one, which is uh, re-election in most cases. Uh, fair enough. That's that's how they work. And uh, that means that uh, we all have to convince the public out there that uh, we shouldn't miss that boat. And in fact, this is an opportunity rather than just a threat. It's mostly opportunity. Uh, and don't listen to uh, those who have very strong vested interest in protecting the status quo. Because in general, that has never really worked too well if you're too focused on the status quo and try to avoid change. Because change is inevitable, right? It's just, do you, do 
you shape the change or is it happening to you? And I think that's, that's, uh, you know, where this debate is right now. So Katharina Guerra, CEO and co-founder of Immutable Insight. Thanks for sharing your insights with us. And uh, thank you for listening. See you all next week.